Uh, we are continuing our look today at, uh, at the, epistles to the, the Epistle to the Philippians, and so uh, this is our third week, and uh, this morning we are looking at chapter 1, verse 27, through the 11th verse of the second chapter. And so I invite you to hear these words from Paul. Paul goes on to say, Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw and I had and now hear that I still have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we do come to you this morning giving you praise for this past week, for the joy of seeing our covenant children here, for the joy, Lord, of being able to teach them more about who you are and what difference that makes in their lives. And we gather now, Lord, this morning again in order to listen in the hopes that your Spirit would speak to us. And so I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So before we kind of dive into today's passage, let's just briefly remember where we've been over these last two weeks, uh, this being the third week of our session on Philippians. And so the first week, uh, if you were here, we talked about the fact that if birthing a church is anything akin to birthing a child, as some say, then the Philippians are by far Paul's favorite kid. Paul loved the Philippians, and he begins his, this particular letter with lots of affirmation and giving thanks to God for just how much the Philippians mean to him. And not only that then, Paul goes on, as we talked about last week, to say, 
to try to console them, to say, look, you may be worried about the situation I'm in, but I want you to know that even though I'm in prison and even though uh, there are others who are glad that I'm in prison and are speaking against me, and even though I may be nearing death, despite all of those things, I want you to know that there is still good that is happening, that the gospel is still being shared. And so Paul then kind of goes into these kind of beginning parts of what of this letter, and, and then he moves on to today, where Paul says, I think somewhat comically actually, he then he begins by saying, well, you know, whether I end up coming or not. And the reason why I think that's a little bit humorous is because he had just said that I'm going to die, maybe I'm going to die, but you know what, I think I'm going to live because I'm going to come visit you. And so you think, okay, they're getting excited about this. Paul says he's going to come visit, all right. Maybe they stop reading right there. They start getting ready, the guest bedroom, you know, doing everything you do. And then all of a sudden he says, well... You know, whether I visit you or not, which of course would have caused some consternation, we thought you were coming, but what's critical about that particular part of the letter is Paul's making a theological statement. And this is somewhat akin to what we talked about the very first week. And the the theological statement is whether I am there or not, whether I am as the church planter, whether I as a leader, whether I as a pastor, whether I am there or not, what is most critical is that you continue to be about the gospel, that you continue to do what the church has called you to do. What Paul says is, whether I'm there or not, keep standing firm in one spirit and keep striving side by side, which would have had a military kind of uh, intonation there, inclination there, like marching together with one mind for the faith of the gospel and not being intimidated by others. Remember that one of the reasons why Paul was so thankful for the Philippians is because they were sharing in the gospel and they understood that in order for the gospel to be spread, that it meant that all of them must do the work of the church, that all of them must do the work of Jesus, not just him, not just the pastor. And as I was thinking about that, as I've thought about that over the last couple of weeks, I've kind of wrestled even more with why is it that so often churches seem to love this kind of sense that, you know, we'll come in here on Sunday morning, that's kind of the work, and then after that we've paid the pastor or the staff to kind of do the work of the church, right? And as I was thinking about that, I realized that in many ways it's because it's a beautiful, symbiotic, uh, dysfunctional relationship. Right? And it, what I mean is it works great for both sides. It works great for the people in the pews, for the congregation members, of course, because, you know, well, this is fantastic. We come, but the pastor does the work, and why should we do any work if the pastor is going to do it? And that's fantastic, and we like that, right? So it kind of lets the congregation off the hook, and the congregation loves that. And the pastor loves it, of course, because it makes him or her feel really good about themselves, right? It makes me feel good, right? Because it means I'm wanted, the pastor's needed, the pastor's special, the pastor's important. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. It feels better about myself. And it works great, right? And everyone loves it, right? And it works perfectly for everyone and everything except for one thing, which is the actual spreading of the gospel, right? And that's the one thing it really doesn't work very well for. Well, you like it, I like it, right, if you're a part of a church like this, but it doesn't actually work very well for the gospel to really spread out. That takes everyone understanding their role. 
Right? Let me remind you of a statistics that I love, the research that has shown that I've shared with you before, but I also just shared it a couple times this week, and I'm going to keep sharing it, which is this, right? Within the most people, I think it's like 80 or 90 percent of people, they decide when they come to visit a church within the first like seven minutes whether or not they will come back. Right? And what do I always say? What doesn't happen in the first seven minutes? Right, the sermon, right? The other thing that doesn't happen is that most of you aren't actually here, right? But, but that's neither here nor there, right? But, right, that, 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 so does that mean that it's not important, that the sermon's not important? Of course it doesn't mean that, right? But it does mean, right, that if we are going to be welcoming and hospitable, just as Jesus has welcomed us, that actually that means it's up to all of us, right? All of us to do that, right? There's a role that all of us play. Which, as a quick aside, let me just say that while I love VBS for the children that come, and I think it's wonderful, probably something that is equally as exciting to me is to be able to see all of our adults, as Kristen already said, who kind of participate. And some of the adults who perhaps haven't participated as much in the past, and this is a great way to see them kind of get more involved and more engaged. And that just does something for me. And so let me thank you again. If you weren't here two weeks ago, let me thank you again for for how much of a priority it seems it is to me, for most of us here at ZPC, to realize that all of us do play a role in the spreading of the gospel. Which brings me, as I was reflecting on it, to what I think at least one of the major themes is of Philippians. It's something we've seen for the last three weeks now, which is how do we most, how are we most able to spread the gospel of Jesus. This is Paul's uh, major concern, right? It's why he, he again affirms that they understand their role. It's why he says, don't get down just because things are, are bad for me or because I'm suffering, because I, I continue to see, as he says, the spreading of the gospel. To today's epistle, where what Paul, I think, is talking about is trying to reveal one of the greatest inhibitors of the spreading of the gospel. And that is conflict and disunity within the local church, right? We don't know exactly what the conflict is. There are a couple of little conflicts that we'll read later on um, um, in the next couple of months later in the epistle. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that something is happening because Paul keeps talking about the importance of unity, right? And he keeps harping back to this importance of unity, And the reality, of course, is that disunity, as Paul knows, conflict kills the spreading of the gospel. Right? First of all, whenever it is that you're kind of fighting amongst yourselves as a local church, um, you end up, you know, the resources that you could be spending on spreading the gospel end up being turned in, right? And you're spending all of your time and all of your energy and all your passions and kind of combating one another, right? So that rather than, than working alongside of one another, you are instead kind of working against one another. And, of course... Disunity in a church and in a local body specifically, perhaps, it kills the witness to the outside, to the people who are watching what's going on. It's really hard to spread the good news of the gospel when you are caught up in a fight, 
right? It's kind of like, a, you know, think about it. It's much like, you know, you have, you, you have the person in a headlock, right? And you're sitting, imagine this, church member after church member, right? They're giving jabs, you know, they're giving noogies, they're doing whatever. And, and, and they're clearly, right, as they do this, they're trying to tell the person across the street, you know, God is love, you know, mm, right? You know, it's, it's just great, right? It's kind of like, this is what kids do, right? You know, I love you. No, you don't, right? And you can't be in a position to try to tell people about the grace-filled love of Jesus Christ. Christ when you are pummeling your brother or sister in Christ. Am I right? Maybe you can. And I think actually that all of us know this. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Philippians themselves knew it. Right, the problem is not that we don't know it. The problem is not that it's not important or that we don't realize how important it is. The problem oftentimes is while we may think it's important, we think it'll be important after we get done with this particular conflict, right? Or we love the image of it. It sounds beautiful. It's perfect. However, what it takes to actually get to that particular place of unity is far too much work, Last week, uh, Monday, I think it was, my family and I, we were driving around doing some errands. And so as we were kind of driving around doing errands, um, I, we stopped into this little place. I ran in someplace. I ran in to get some hair gel, okay? Uh, Paco the parrot was killing my hair, okay? And so I, I ran in to get some hair stuff, and as I was coming back out, as I was coming back out, there was a karate place that was right there. This is uh, across the street from Boone Village. And there, were, there was a little flyer in there that said kind of special, you know, summer offer. And as soon as I saw that, my mind went straight back to when I was a kid and was a budding black belt. I don't like to share this stuff because I don't like to brag, but... Okay, I never became the black belt, but that's the point of the story. Here's... The thing, as I was looking at that, and I was remembering kind of my time as I was a karate student, I, I was thinking about the fact that I know what exactly it is that kind of got me excited about, about being a karate student, right? And that was, of course, a movie, a movie that came out in 1984 when I was 10 years old. And what was that movie? Karate Kid, look at that. Right? There's Ralph Macchio, there's Pat Morita, right? And the story of Karate Kid, right? Hopefully you know that. If you don't know the story of the Karate Kid, then it is a crying shame. The story of the Karate Kid, of course, is Daniel, right? Who comes from Jersey, he moves to California, and all of a sudden he starts getting beat up, right? By members of Cobra Kai. That's right, Cobra Kai Dojo, right? And, uh, and, so, uh, and so this is not a good thing. And, uh, and, and so things are not looking very good, but it just so happens, right? Just so happens that, um, that, the, uh, that Mr. Miyagi is the maintenance guy, property guy at the apartment complex where Daniel's son, as he will eventually be called, where he is, um, uh, where he's staying. And it just so happens, of course, it's, I mean, you know, that he's an expert at karate, right? Which is great. And so eventually then he begins to learn karate, and, uh, and so things start getting better. And this next slide, you can see he learns what's called the crane kick. Anyone remember that? It was, Mr. Miyagi told him, indefensible, which I always thought was kind of weird because it seemed like you could just be like, right? Anyone else? Fine. All right, so 
So there he is. He's learning that, right? And, and, and as he kind of continues, all of a sudden things keep getting better and better for him, right? He's learning this karate. Um, um, he eventually gets this cool antique truck, a bright yellow truck. And anyone remember that truck? And then he, 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 he ends up kind of starting to date. Uh, let's see here. Who is this down at the right-hand corner? Elizabeth Shue, but who was it in the movie? Allie with an I. That's how she's known, right? This was kind of, as a 10-year-old, this was kind of my first crush. I've talked to Megan about it. We're good. But Allie, Allie with an I, right? And everything gets better. And then, right at the very end, right, he ends up, he ends up uh, using the crane. And he gets, uh, in the competition, he gets Johnny, right? And then it goes out with this great song, you know, You're the best, you're the best. Ah, nothing's ever going to keep you down. You're the best. Don, come up. No, okay, fine. It's phenomenal, right? All right, we can cut this off. You guys are not into Karate Kid. So, anyone in their 40s, especially a male, loves Karate Kid. So, so I, I watched that, right, and it was phenomenal. This was great, right? And it just so happened that a little bit after that, there was a store up front that kind of opened up called Taekwondo Plus. And when it opened up, I begged my mom. I said, Mom, please let me join Taekwondo Plus. And finally she said, okay. And so sure enough, I got a year-long membership to Taekwondo Plus, and I can remember putting on that karate uniform for the first time. I mean, the power, it's just, you know, beautiful. Like I was, I was Daniel all of a sudden, right? And I knew it was only going to be a matter of time before I I was beating up a bunch of bullies. I was riding around in a sweet ride, and I was going to have a girlfriend named Allie with an I, right? And that was all great for about a month. And then I realized that I was spending three days a week, I think it was, coming to this place with a bunch of other kind of awkward adolescent boys, mostly, and, and, and guys who were really there, and, and, and as I looked at them, I realized that they were looking for Allie with an eye as well. And, and, and I realized that they were kind of hoping that this was going to take them to another level. But what we were doing was this. You get the point. Now, at that point, I was going much higher, but I've had some strain with being parrot, uh, P, uh, Paco. And I realized this was super lame and super boring, and it was taking up a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice to sit here and to do absolutely nothing that was glamorous, to just be sitting there with a bunch of other kind of stinky, awkward adolescent boys. I love adolescent boys, but that was, you know, to be sitting there doing that, and I would look outside, and I would see people, you know, friends, you know, they're riding by on their bikes, and I would just be sitting here like this, right, and looking out, and I realized that I didn't want to be in there anymore. And, and so finally then, you know, I begged my mom. I kept begging her. I kept begging her, please just let me stop. And so six months into my year-long membership, which she continues to remember and give me a hard time about, I finally got to quit. The point is, don't mess with me. No, that's not the point. Clearly, I didn't learn very much. The point is this. I love this idea. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was going to be great. What a wonderful image. Thank you for this image of what could be. But I did not have any heart to actually do the hard work it was going to take to actually reach that 
place, right? That it wasn't going to happen unless I was willing to sit there and do those little sidekicks and jumping sidekicks and blocks and punches day after day, week after week, and I did not have the heart for it. And one of the things it seems to me that gets us in trouble more often than not is that we love the idea, we love the image of unity. We think it would make a great movie. We like to think about it up until all of a sudden something actually happens that's going to cause us work if we really want to die to ourselves and to be a part of a unified community. And at that point, we are out Right? And Paul knows this. One of the things about Paul that I love, and he does this not just in this epistle, but in many other epistles, is he knows how to paint a beautiful image, but he never allows us to stay there, right? Paul begins this part of the passage right here. He says this. It's very poetic. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Having the same loving, uh, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And everyone says, yes, that's exactly what we should do. That's the kind of church we want to be a part of. That's wonderful. But then, if you keep reading, Paul says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. You know what that is? That's doing sidekicks again and again and again and again, even when you do not want to. There is nothing that is exciting or enticing about not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others, of regarding others as better than yourselves. It's kind of, it really, it's deflating more than anything else. The notion of unity is beautiful, and we love it. The realities of what it takes to really get there, though, is a whole nother ball of wax. And I think I think that one of the reasons why we struggle with it is not just because it's a beautiful, because it's, it, it takes work to get to that beautiful picture, but it's because too many of us think that a unified community is dependent on a good community, and we forget that it actually starts not with the community, but it starts with you and with Verse 5 of this particular passage says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. There's a double entendre there of this. There's two perfect ways to translate this. One of them, because the you is plural, is let the same mind be amongst you. That was in Christ Jesus, right? Which makes sense, okay? So, so we should have a community that is unified. Let that, let, let, let that same mind be amongst you, be amongst all of you. Okay, great. Let's have a unified community. But it can also, as the NRSV translates it, it also means at the same time, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, let the same mind of humility, of self-sacrifice, of giving up your rights for others, let it be in you. 
Right? Gordon Fee says that to each, each of us need to have the mindset in you so that it can be manifested among you. In other words, it starts with you. And most often what I find is that what people want is they think that what they want is this great unified community. That would be perfect if we could do that. And they forget that actually, if that's ever going to happen, it starts with what you are willing to give up, with what selfish ambition you are willing to give away, what right that you feel like you must have that giving that away to somebody else, right? We almost always, again, we almost always are willing to forgive if someone else asks for forgiveness first. Right? We're almost always willing to be gracious to somebody if they are gracious to us first. Right? We're almost always willing to reconcile as long as someone else is, is, is willing to reconcile first. Right? But what Paul says here is, no, no, no. In order for you to have this mind among you, it starts within you. Right? It starts with you giving up your own personal desires first. And that is a hard part. And truth be told, of course, our culture, as we say, it doesn't cultivate that. Right? One of the very first sermons I ever preached here, uh, um, 2014, we, we looked at the letter to the Colossians. And again, almost every letter Paul talks about unity because he knows how important it is. And one of the things that we talked about was our culture— Right? What does it do? It cultivates a people who get it their way. You get it your way right away. Right? And, and so as I said, right, you, you, we come in here, right? You, you come in maybe with your coffee cup, right? Or, or whatever it is from Starbucks, right? And it's, like, it's your own kind of grande, sugar-free, vanilla, non-fat, no water, chai tea latte. And you bring it in. You, you, you bring it into the sanctuary, right? Which again, I've told you, I, that's okay. You can bring it into the sanctuary. What I'm worried about I'm not worried about the stain on the carpet that that Starbucks cup brings in. What I am worried about are the values of that cup that we may be unaware of. Which means that if you've gotten your cup of coffee or your chai exactly as you want it, when you come in here, guess what you want from worship? You want it to be exactly what you want. You don't care if it's what your neighbor wants. That person can get his, his or her own drink. You want the way you want it, right? And the church, by and large, we've been pretty good with kind of engendering that same mentality, right? Let's be brutally honest. Think about Sunday mornings here at ZPC even, right? If you like the choir, when do you come? You come at 9 o'clock. If you prefer much more up-tempo kind of music, when do you come? 10.30. If you say, I, I, I like to, I, you know what, I, I got a lot going on today, so I'm going to try to come do the earlier service so that then I can get the rest of my work done. Maybe you're a late sleeper. You want to sleep in. Then you come to the later service. Maybe it is. You just don't feel like getting up at all, or you're going to be someplace else, so you can just listen online. Right? Or, or, or even, you know, I mean, as you continue, think about this, this church right here, uh, as you can see, that gives a full body massage chair if you come. 
Now, that's actually not true. That was a, a, a satire, but it won't be long. And for the right price, you can get them right here. <laughs> My point, though, is this, right? That we are used to getting things exactly as we want them. Now, look, again, the point is not to make everyone miserable, right? No, we don't want to, you know, we don't want you to be happy. I get it. There is particular kinds, of, there are particular kinds of music that I, I feel like help me worship in one sense more than others, right? Although, again, as I've said before, what might actually shape me more like God, more like Jesus, is not for me to have the exact music I like. It is for me to sit through music that I may not like but be able to see someone else fully engage in. That that might actually shape me more like Jesus to give up some of my own rights or my own desires for others. Or maybe it would just be easier if the 1030 would just do things the way we want them to do things, right? The reality, sisters and brothers, is this. It is a lot easier to shape a church around our own wants and needs than it is to shape a church around who Jesus is. Right? It's a lot easier to shape church based on our own personal preferences than it is to shape it on the one who came and who suffered and who sacrificed for us. Right? And that's really kind of where Paul ends up this particular part of the letter. Right? What, is it, what does it take for unity? It takes, of course, an awareness of how our culture is shaping us. It takes, uh, it takes us knowing um, that it's going to take a lot of work. It takes us knowing, of course, that, um, you know, that, that, that unity begins with me, not with my neighbor, that it begins with me, right? But then Paul ends it in this beautiful way with what's called a hymn there, starting with basically verse 5 or 6 and going through verse 11, where he simply lifts up Jesus. Right? Someone has said, Paul doesn't feel the need to scold the Philippians. What he feels the need to is to remind them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them and who they are now as they are in Christ. Right? It may seem kind of overly simplistic, but in the reality is, it seems to me that so often when we get caught up, when churches get caught up in conflict and anger with one another, that what happens is not that they don't care about spreading the gospel, not that they don't want to be a good witness, it's that they have forgotten who Jesus is. And they have forgotten who they are in Christ. The reality is, of course, it is difficult in the midst of fighting and adversity and in the midst of disagreements, which you will always have, it is difficult in the midst of all of that to remember the Jesus who gave up everything in order to be with us. C.S. Lewis uh, says somewhere, I can't remember where, he says that if you want to get a sense of what it was like for Jesus to come to earth, it's a little bit like if you were to wake up tomorrow as a garden slug. Right? The difference between what he gave up and that so often, if we would simply remember who Jesus is and who we are in Christ, then unity and our own sense of sacrificing might come a bit more easily. 
It isn't easy in the throes of things. I shared a while back about what sometimes happens when Megan and I, uh, my wife and I, when we get in conflict, right, and, 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 and how um, what, what, what I see happening in my own life in the midst of those arguments is, is, is I forget who she is, right? And in fact, she even says, you know, usually post the argument, you know, you, you kind of, it felt like you forgot who I was because what do I get focused on? Winning the argument, Right? What becomes most important to me is that I end up being right. Thank you. That's an amen, and the Spirit speaks. That's exactly right. Right? And we get so caught up in that that we forget, that I forget the importance of our unity, that I forget who she is as my wife, that I forget who I am as her husband. And in the same way, Paul says, in the midst of these disagreements, which you will always have, there's never a time when there isn't some kind of disagreement. It's always going to be there. The answer is not to figure out how you can never disagree. The answer instead is in the midst of that, how do you always remember who Jesus is and who your brother and sister in Christ is and who you are? And what difference does that make in how we live together. Sisters and brothers in Christ, my hope and my prayer is that we will remember the story of Jesus because it is to be the story of the church. We are to reflect that in the ways in which we love and care for one another, in the ways in which we disagree with one another. Might we have the humility the willingness to sacrifice, the willingness to begin me, not you, but may I have the willingness to begin to live into that so that the gospel, the good news of Jesus' love and grace may continue to be spread throughout this community and the world. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. For the glory of God. Hallelujah. Amen.